Hi friend, my name is Eric Carter-Londine, and I am the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. This is not your typical true crime podcast. You see, my brother was murdered over three decades ago in New Mexico, and I have been fighting for justice for him ever since. I created this show to advocate for my brother's case and for others in my community who are seeking justice. I cover cases with an empathetic lens because I know what it's like to seek justice for a family member. True Consequences covers cases from New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. Give my show a shot. You can listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or you can go to trueconsequences.com. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. You're listening to Campus Killings. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to Indiana State University, located in Terre Haute, a town near the Illinois border. In 1972, when a young college woman was murdered and her case would go unsolved for more than 40 years. This is Campus Killings. 19-year-old Pamela Milam was a college sophomore. She matriculated to Indiana State University in the fall of 1971, long before we were born, Amy. Pam lived at home with her parents, Helen and Charles, at 101 Dawn Lane. She commuted the 10 short minutes in her car to campus for her classes. I would never have wanted to live at home. You? No, no, I would not. But I guess that's the benefit of living close to campus, as many of our students do as well. About half of our students commute. Okay. Pam had two sisters, younger sister Sheila, who went by Sam, and older sister Charlene, who married in 1970 and moved to Richmond. Pam was her maid of honor. The Milam family had moved to Terre Haute. Um, As I said, it's close up, maybe about five miles from the border of Illinois, from Richmond during Pam's sophomore year of high school. A piece about her in the Terre Haute Tribune in 1970 says she was an active member of many organizations, um, such as the Girl Scouts, the Girls Athletic Association, the school literary magazine. She was the editor. She played the clarinet and the alto sax. Um, And if that wasn't enough, she had other hobbies, which included sewing and reading. Pam loved books. Um, Her aspiration was to become an English teacher. She also worked at the Southland branch of the Emmeline Fairbanks Public Library, where she was really friendly with the head librarian, who was a sorority sister of Pam's. Prior to college, Pam had graduated from Honey Creek High School in 1971, where she was a member, not surprisingly, of the National Honor Society and the class speaker at her graduation. Her speech to her classmates emphasized that, quote, our future is whatever we choose to make it. Pam was also very religious. Um, She was a member of the Second Presbyterian Church of Richmond and the Y Teens Group. Pam was also affiliated with the Jesus Movement of Terre Haute. Very close with her family, 
Pam was not known for really drinking or doing any drugs or any real kind of shenanigans. No nonsense. Her sister Sam said Pam was always a good girl, a rule follower, someone who was responsible and practical. Sam was only 14 months younger and was also a freshman at the same school at Indiana State University. However, she did have a boyfriend and Pam and her boyfriend Dave had recently gotten engaged, but Pam had yet to tell her parents. On Friday evening of September 15, 1972, Pam and fellow Sigma Kappa sisters attended a rush party on campus. You remember these? Yes. Of course. Me too. The girls had decorated the space in the men's annex for the party earlier that day. The gathering ran from approximately 6.30 p.m. till 10.15 p.m. After it was over, the girls cleaned up and collected the decorations to use for another time. Pan was on the decorating committee. She was on every committee. She was. Like. She was, yeah. yeah. Um, so she was in charge of basically the box of decor and getting everything together. Pam and two other girls left the men's annex and walked to Pam's car, parked in lot 22, which was not far away. Pam put the box of stuff in her car, and the girls proceeded to their next event, which was a meeting in Homestead Hall. Pam reportedly stayed there from a short period of time, about 10.30 p.m. until just after 11. Around 11, the girls left the party, and Pam went to move her car. She wanted to park it closer to the sorority suite located in Lincoln Quad. She was pretty far away. Pam was last seen by two of her sorority sisters walking north between the science building and Homestead Hall, going for her car. The next morning, Saturday, Sam, um, which was Pam's sister, got a phone call from Pam's boyfriend, Dave. Dave told Sam that he hadn't heard from Pam and that she was not at the sorority suite where she should have been. Um, The Milams received a phone call saying that Pam had not shown up for her regularly Saturday morning work shift at the library, which was very uncharacteristic for this responsible young woman. So her parents called the police to report Pam missing. Her father, Charles, started driving around the campus looking for Pam and her car anywhere. But it's a big campus. I'm not sure if you know ISU. I haven't been there. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know if I drove through with my brother. I can't remember, but it's a huge campus. And so even though he was driving around, he really wasn't sure to look. But at 7 p.m. that same day, and that's Saturday, Two of Pam's sorority sisters saw her distinctive red 1964 Pontiac Le Mans parked in the 5th Street and Lafayette Avenue campus parking lot. This was known as Lot 27, and it was across from the Lincoln Quad. Pam's car was also missing the right rear hubcap, and she had a front license plate that read JESUS in all caps. So Mm. it was, you know, if you did know what you were looking for, it was easy to find that kind of car. Lincoln Quad, by the way, is the complex in which the Sigma Kappa suite was located. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's where she was probably moving her car to be closer. Right. The car was backed up into the parking spot. It was dark out because it was 7 p.m. So the girls got a flashlight and shone it into the car interior. The beam reflected off the lenses of Pam's glasses sitting on the dash. And Pam's distinct handbag decorated with painted mushrooms was in the back seat. The car was locked. The girls didn't know what to make of this, but they left it alone just for the time. Meanwhile, Dave, Pam's boyfriend, also spotted the car and the glasses. The thing was, Pam couldn't really see without her glasses. So Dave knew that this was bad. He immediately called the Milam home and talked to her parents. Charles Milam, her father, drove to the car's location with a spare set of keys. He and Sam arrived at lot 27 at approximately 8.30 p.m. that evening. So she's been missing for almost 24 hours. Yeah, that's correct. Last time she was seen was around 11 p.m. As Charles parked, he was approached by Stephen Warren, who had graduated from Indiana State University. 
He lived nearby and was friendly with some of Pam's sisters. He said the girls had told him that they were worried because Pam's car was there, but Pam was nowhere in sight. Charles unlocked the car, but there really weren't many clues to Pam's whereabouts, just that her glasses were there and that her handbag was there. But then he popped the trunk. Unfortunately, when he opened the trunk, he found Pam. What? Yes, Pam was dead. She was bound and gagged. And Sam, her sister, also saw the whole thing. Charles screamed and the ISU police were called. I don't think anyone was expecting to find that, to be honest. In the car, they found two spools of clothesline, one of which had been used to tie Pam up. That's how Pam was tied. Her hands were tied behind her back, and her ankles were bound as well. The clothesline was also found around her neck. Her mouth had been stuffed with a piece of denim material, and her mouth and chin covered with large amounts of masking tape. Keep her quiet. Two rolls of masking tape were found in her car. The clothesline and tape were among the items that Pam had used as part of the decorating committee, not things brought by the killer. Oh. Because initially I thought, oh, yeah. well, someone came prepared. No, yeah. this was stuff that she had. Fingerprints were lifted from the car but led nowhere at the time. Vigo County Coroner Robert Burkle announced that Pam had died of asphyxiation by strangulation caused by the rope around her neck. Was she sexually assaulted as well? We'll get there. He believed that she was dead before she was placed in the trunk, which I would think is obvious. Scratches on her face were thought to have come from a sharp taillight assembly kit inside the car trunk that she possibly rolled into while in the trunk. So not necessarily sustained during um, any type of altercation or attack. The time of death was established to be around midnight Friday night. You know, we talk about time of death. Um, it's not an exact science. I think that some people think it, it rather is, but I've spoken with a couple of medical examiners who've said it's way more complicated than that. And time of death isn't necessarily established just by the state of the body, but by events, people mm-hmm. reporting circumstantial. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Pam was fully clothed when she was found. News articles stated that she had not been sexually assaulted, but that was wrong information. It's possible that this was held back at the time to protect Pam's family or to hold back some info that only, you know, someone, the perpetrator would know. I would think more the latter. I would too, but the timing was also 1970s, a little bit different. You know, I I think, you know, this is is one of those areas or time periods where it's possible that they were trying to be chivalrous. Mm -hmm. Um, A stick and other debris, like maybe a leaf or some dirt, was found between Pam's pantyhose and her pants. Investigators concluded that her pants had been removed and put back on, most likely somewhere in a wooded nearby area. Mm. A stain was also noted on Pam's blouse. All of her clothing was collected into evidence. Investigators believe that Pam's car was moved, possibly by the killer. Her sorority sisters said that Pam's car was found in a different parking spot than where it had been seen late Friday, which was in Lot 22 in the second row. The location where the car was found on Saturday night, Lot 27, was about a block away from where it had been parked the day before. Now, I knew she was going to move her car, but I'm not sure which lot would have been closer. Pam had clearly made it to her car after she left Homestead Hall um, as her glasses and purse were found inside of it. So there was no doubt about that. Police also collected soil samples from the car. And the police asked the public for help. They published photos of the car and asked any information about sightings or movements of the car because it was so distinct. 
um, from, you know, 4 p.m. Friday until the time her car was found on Saturday. They wanted to account for those missing hours and figure out where Pam was during that time period. It seems that she might have been abducted in her own car, unfortunately. As a result of the publicity, though, a tip was called in to the Terre Haute Police Department by a truck driver. This man had been parked at the Weibosh River near the ISU campus on the night Pam was killed. He said that he saw a vehicle with a man and a woman in it pull into a secluded area along the riverbank. He couldn't ID the car, and he didn't witness any suspicious activity, but police searched the area because Pam's clothing indicated, remember, that she had been in a wooded area, and her car tires had mud on them, which also supported this theory. Pam's car keys were never found. The police tried to keep this quiet, but the press got wind of it anyway. The Terre Haute Tribune also reported that one witness at the scene said that the toe of one of Pam's shoes was covered with what looked like sand. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. As the investigation goes on, the investigators did the usual stuff. And what is that? Well, they speak with all of her family, her friends, her sorority sisters. Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. Steve Warham, he was the former student who approached Charles at the car. Current ISU students who knew her. Her librarian friend, I mean, and so on. Pam knew a lot of people. Remember, she's involved in all these organizations. So news reports stated that they spoke with over 150 people in this case. The last time anyone could recall seeing Pam was walking between Homestead Hall and the Science Building just after 11 p.m. after that sorority meeting. They all said that they thought Pam went to move her car um, because she didn't like to park far away. No one had seen anything suspicious except for that, you know, one uh, man who was on the riverbank. But even he, he wasn't suspicious. He just saw someone. Dave had an alibi for the night of Pam's murder because, of course, we're going to think the boyfriend. He was at home with his parents and brother, and he volunteered to and passed a polygraph. A burglary on campus on the same night as the murder attracted the notice of the investigators. This was a break-in at a building near the 5th Street and Lafayette Avenue lot where Pam's car and body were found. Unfortunately, police decided that this was more likely the work of drunken students and it wasn't connected to Pam's murder. About three weeks after Pam's death, ISU announced a $1,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension of the person who killed Pam. So that would be about $6,000 in today's dollars. Police got a little bit of tunnel vision, though, um, when a suspect emerged. We know this happens often. The suspect was 21-year-old construction worker Robert Wayne Austin. But Amy, I think you're going to see why they may have gotten tunnel vision. Sometimes... It makes sense. On November 5th, 1972, Austin tried to abduct a young woman on the ISU campus. She fought him off and got away, but his next two victims were not so lucky. At 3.59 a.m. on November 8th, Austin attacked a woman walking alone on the campus. He grabbed her around the throat, forced her into his car, and drove her to a wooded area and raped her. Then he dropped her back on campus. That's a very different M.O. That is a different M.O., but but it's the same campus. Mm -hmm. The same night, too, around 9 p.m., he attacked another young woman the same way, grabbed her by the throat, pulled her into his car, raped her in a wooded area, and then dropped her back off at ISU campus. This victim remembered some identifying information about her assailant and was able to work with police to lure him into a trap where they arrested him. 
It's not clear how this was done, just so you know, whether she knew his name or what and what the trap was, but they were able to apprehend him. And then Austin suddenly becomes the prime suspect for Pam's case. And I agree with you. It's a different MO, but what you have is a, a violent offender around the same time period. Pam's murder happened on September 15th. Mm-hmm. And so Austin's attack happened in November in the okay. beginning. So it's That's still pretty close. Yeah. It's not that far away. And again, if you got away with the crime, why are you going back to the scene of the crime? Wouldn't you try a different campus? Because no, he, he killed could, Pam first. Yes, but he could be a territorial hunter. Yeah. I mean, some people have a spot they go to, similar mm-hmm. spot all the time. Because he got away with it, he feels comfortable there. Okay. You know, I think it was all they had at the time. Mm-hmm. So he becomes the prime suspect. His other attacks occurred within a two-block radius of the site where Pam's car and body were mm-hmm. found. And in the same, you know, I said same time frame, his victims were young women alone on campus. Austin, surprisingly, admitted to the rapes, but he adamantly maintained that he did not kill Pam. Austin's attorney claimed that he had an alibi as well. He had spent the evening of September 16th, his birthday, in a bar with lots of people. So Austin was convicted of kidnapping, rape, and sodomy for the two sexual assaults at ISU that were unrelated to Pam's death. And in April 1973, he got life in prison. Yes, uh, it's a very harsh sentence at the time for kidnapping and rape. Or, you know, you may argue that it's not, but at the time it was. Uh, He was, however, released, just so you know, as a side note, after serving 20 years. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't link him to Pam, but most investigators continue to believe that he was the real culprit and they just couldn't find the Any link. other reason why, other than similar time frame, similar location, any other evidence linking no. him? Okay. No, no, that was it. Okay, so several years go by and this is really becoming a cold case. But then in 2001, Detective Mike McGuire submitted all the physical evidence from Pam's case to the Indiana State Police Lab for testing using updated techniques. Most of the samples were too degraded to yield results, but the stain on Pam's blouse proved to be semen. And so tests were able to extract a DNA profile from the sample that would permit comparison to DNA samples from persons of interest. You got to love technology, the evolution. And it's really great in some of these cold cases when they save and preserve this evidence Mm -hmm. so well that it can be tested 35, 40, 50 years later. That's why I don't think I think evidence preservation is so important. Absolutely is. Yeah, it's it's crucial. It really yeah. is crucial in solving these. So what would happen with this? But it's even crucial in, quote, solved cases to hold on to the evidence. Absolutely agree, yeah. Amy. There were no hits in CODIS at the time. Um, CODIS being the combined DNA index system, indexing system. But they obtained a warrant for Austin's DNA. Remember their prime mm-hmm. suspect? He was at a prison. Guess what? His didn't DNA match. did not match. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think it did. No, you, looked, think, you were yeah. shaking your head. So I got it. Two partial prints from the door of Pam's car had no hits in APHIS, and this is um, the uh, repository Mm -hmm. for fingerprints. A print on her glasses also yielded no information. So it would be another couple of years where the case would sit because they didn't really get anything from this testing. But in 2008, investigator Sean Keene became chief detective of the Terre Haute Police Department. He's now the chief of police. And he took this case to heart. He said that there were 56 men listed in the case file by name. And in 2008, he submitted the rope found around Pam's body for new testing to detect touch DNA. Hmm. And a profile obtained from the rope was consistent with the DNA from the stain on Pam's blouse. So whoever had tied her up had also been the one who had 
you know, probably forced. But yes, there were sexual. It was. A were sexual they just assault. trying to eliminate the theory that that could have been like a consensual act? And That's then exactly it. the okay. point. They wanted to make sure that no one was going to try to argue later on that, you know, this was consensual. Mm-hmm. And that's why I didn't use the word relations or intercourse. Yes. I say that sexual assault. Yep. Dave was also, just so you know, her, remember the ex-boyfriend, mm-hmm. was also now a member of the Terre Haute Police Force, and he gave a DNA sample as well, and of course it was not a match. We never thought that was. Keen sent the rest of Pam's blouse to Parabon Nanolab's partner lab, who had to use up the entire semen stain sample. This is always a risk, because mm-hmm. once you use the sample, it's gone and you can't get it back. But if you don't use it, you may never be able to figure out who did it. They were able to obtain what's called an SNP profile. This is like sequences in your DNA that are used as markers. And this profile was suitable for genetic genealogical research. (gasps) Yes, I know. Genetic genealogy. Yes. Yes. So previous phenotyping had indicated that the suspect had brown eyes sending Keen down multiple wrong avenues. But this newest analysis showed that the suspect had sandy blonde hair, greenish eyes, and freckled fair skin. But I'm assuming he didn't totally eliminate anyone on the basis of the brown eye theory. I don't think so. Yeah. No. Okay. But but he had there was more. Yeah. There's more good stuff coming. This complicated forensic genealogy started with the match to the suspect in Jedmatch. You've heard of Jedmatch, the yes. database. Um that shared hundred and thirty four centimorgans. CMs are also a unit to measure genetic mm-hmm. linkage. With the suspect. What this means, Amy, translated, is that they basically found about a third cousin match. So they have a place to start. This is really, I mean, this is really. I mean, this is how they've solved a lot of cold cases in recent years. Oh, yeah. This is the Golden State Killer of recent, you know. Shocking. Yes. What's it called? Bearbrook? Bearbrook, absolutely. Um, Mapping out all the known relatives showed that there were four men who could have been the killer based on age. Family members were cooperative and submitted DNA samples to help narrow down the field of suspects, too. It turned out that one set of siblings from one family had married a set of siblings from another family, complicating matters. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of confusingly close relatives. Mm -hmm. However, finally, Parabon was able to come up with a potential suspect. His name was Jeffrey Lynn Hand. Unfortunately, Hand had been dead since 1978. Had he attended that university or lived in the area? Well, I'm going to give you some more information on him in one moment. But hold that. Hold your excitement. They verified his identity uh, by doing a reverse paternity test using Han's living ex-wife and child who cooperated. And it was confirmed with more than 99.99% certainty that the DNA of Jeffrey Lynn Han matched that of Pam's killer. The chief deputy at the time went on record saying that if Hand were alive, they would have had probable cause to arrest him for the murder of Pan Milam. But you asked, who is he and was he on the suspect list? And no, he wasn't. Hand was born in Indiana on February 2nd, 1949. He attended Washington High School in Davies County. He was married as a teen to remember the ex-wife who cooperated, whose name was Rebecca. He had joined the Army for a few years after high school. In 1972, the year that he killed Pam, Han was employed as a delivery man for a Chicago record company. His route took him all over Indiana and Illinois, making deliveries to record stores. His wife claimed that he was both violent and abusive. He was 23 when he killed Pam Milam in September 1972. It's unknown what he was doing on the ISU campus, 
but he was probably making a delivery to a nearby record store. He was one of those who knew well enough that if he was looking for young female victims, where better than a huge college campus at night? It reminds me of, you know, a Bundy and others. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. You think this is a crime of opportunity? He saw her. He actually went looking for a young female. I have a feeling he was scouting young yeah. female. However, this was not his only crime. Oh, But his other crime is different, Amy. Han picked up a hitchhiking couple around 9 p.m. on June 16, 1973. This was a young couple, a 22-year-old husband named Jeffrey Wayne and his 19-year-old wife, Carol. They were newlyweds. And this was on US-41 near Terre Haute. So, you know, a major kind of throughway. Han was driving a turquoise 1968 Chevy at the time. He pulled over at a small white farmhouse east of Warrington in Gibson County. This was actually his own home, Amy, where he lived with Rebecca and their three kids, right? He pulled a gun on the couple and fired his gun, a 38 Special, through the roof of his Chevy. Okay, he made them get out and he tied their hands and informed them that he was robbing them. They had $1.17 to hand over. Oh, no. He put Carol in the grain silo, tied wire around her ankles, and locked her in, and then he drove off with her husband, Jeffrey. To go to the bank? No, hold that (laughs) thought. Carol managed to escape, and she ran to a farmhouse a quarter mile up the road. She called the police, who met her at the house, and she directed them exactly back to Han's farmhouse. At 3.30 a.m., when Han returned to the house, his own property, the police were waiting there to arrest him. And Han led them to Jeffrey's body. Pretty quickly. He did. He murdered him. Jeffrey lay in some brush about 40 feet from an isolated roadway, his hands still tied behind him. Was he sexually assaulted? No. He had been shot in the face with a 22 caliber rifle. He had also been stabbed eight times and his throat cut. Han had been fired the week before and was facing bankruptcy. It seemed that these events in his life and the mounting financial pressure may have been a trigger for these events. Do you think he was planning to go back and sexually assault the woman? I don't know. It's, it's hard just, to speculate It just seems bizarre. Like, it does. This is this is one of those very bizarre, you know, cases. because It doesn't you, fit into it, it anything we know or understand. That's what makes these cases so scary. I think so. And so unique because this doesn't, this doesn't quite compute, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we could speculate. Was he intending to, he took the husband somewhere, kill him, or try to get more money out of him? This yeah. wasn't at a time where you drove people to, you know, ATMs. Yeah. So I'm really not sure what the purpose was. And pe- per- possibly, was he going to come back and sexually assault her? Yeah. I, I, I would imagine he kept her alive for a reason. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But- so maybe then it's not that complicated. Maybe he's an angry guy. He's got to get the guy off his property, kills him, so he can come back and assault the wife. But it still doesn't quite fit with the MO. So he was arrested for that. He and was arrested. Was, I'm sorry, this was after the murder of Pam or before? This was after Pam's murder. Okay. Yes. Okay. So he was charged with murder in Posey County, where Jeffrey Thomas had been found, and charged with the kidnapping in Gibson County, where he had brought the couple under duress. A grand jury indicted Han for murder on June 25th, 1973. His trial was set for the fall of 1973. You know what's interesting? Trials happened quicker. Because there wasn't such a backlog of cases, probably. No, I think that's absolutely true. I agree. Uh, Han decided to plead insanity, though, at a time where, you know, insanity pleas, they've never been common, but I think this was a time where they were more acceptable than now. We tend to frown on them now, but... 
Um, he had lunged at members of the media in the courtroom, insisted on covering his face. At some court hearings, he was reportedly incoherent and unable to communicate. So a psych evaluation was ordered. And on June 26th, Han tried to hang himself by wrapping a piece of cloth ripped from his mattress around a light fixture and tying it around his neck. However, he was cut down before he could complete the suicide. At the trial, you know what happens. Expert disagreed as to Han's sanity. He kept talking about an alter ego named Chuck who made him do crazy things. Sounds um, like malingering to me. Ah, what's malingering, Amy? Faking mental illness, usually for some legal gain. Uh-huh, okay. Um, some witness attested to Hand being racist, which might explain the murder of Jeffrey, because Jeffrey, the young couple, uh-huh. Jeffrey was a black male and Carol was white. So some say that he might have been also infuriated by this. Oh, so maybe it was, maybe that's that motivation. It might have been. It might have just been a hate crime. It, ju- it might have been a hate crime triggered by other huh. events in his life. The jury returned a verdict after 100 minutes. <laughs> finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow, really? I know you were surprised to hear that. No, I, yeah, Ah, okay. Han was moved to a maximum security facility, however, after he almost fatally attacked another inmate. He was awaiting trial in the other county on the kidnapping charges. Remember, there were two separate counties, Mm -hmm. one for the murder, one for the kidnapping. After a motion from Han's attorney saying the kidnapping and murder arose from the same set of circumstances, Judge Tilly declared that the insanity verdict should apply to both. What? Yes. And in August 1975, Han was sent to the Norman Beatty State Mental Hospital under a temporary commitment order. But you're not even going to believe this. The state's attorneys missed the 10-day deadline to move that temporary commitment to be made permanent. And guess what happened? He He had to go free? He was released in June 1976 and moved back home with his family. Wow. I wonder how many other unsolved murders he is responsible for. He wouldn't have that long. On January 24th, 1978, 25-year-old Susan Matlock was shopping at the Marklin Mall in Kokomo. Han followed her to her 1977 Pontiac Firebird, attacked her, and pushed her inside. But... A clerk inside the Blocks Department store saw this and called the Kokomo police. Hans had a gun and told Susan he needed a ride to South Bend. He put her in the passenger seat and drove away. Kokomo police officer Jerry Castle drove up behind the Pontiac in a squad car and Hans sped away. A deputy from Howard County Sheriff's Office joined in the pursuit and Hand lost control of the car because it was snowing and it skidded into a snowbank. He then jumped out and ran away. Deputies chased Han into an alley and Hand shot him. So one of the deputies managed to shoot Hand in the shoulder, puncturing his lung, and Hand ran away yet again. Yes, this isn't like a movie plot, right? But it really happened. He ran to some nearby railroad tracks, and one of the officers fired three shots at his back. Hand ducked under a parked boxcar and made it 30 feet before dying. Oh, wow. So he... Okay. Do you think he was one of these situations like and no. it was like suicide by cop? No, I don't no. actually. Okay. I think he was legitimately trying to get away. So that's how he died. That's how he died in a in a shootout over committing another crime. His wife's car was found at the mall, by the way, where he abducted Susan in his car. And on him were found rope, stocking cap, masking tape, ammo, and gloves. Also, articles from local papers about recent engagements. 
Ooh. So that woman was left physically unharmed. Yes. I'm sure mentally yes. is another thing. Yeah. But she was okay physically. The abduction of Susan mirrored that of Pam, mm-hmm. Milam, if you think about it, because he targeted, that was the similar, targeted yeah. solo young women, used threats and intimidation, possibly a gun. Um, with Susan, he was interrupted, though. Um, luckily, with his second victim, she was saved. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Chief Keen had a press conference on May 6, 2019, announcing the closure of the Pam Milam case. Pam's sisters attended. Both of her parents had passed away by this time. Mm. Investigators believe Han had more victims, as you said. I would think. If he got away with Pam's, I'm yeah. sure there's many more. Have they try- I'm assuming they're trying to... Yep, they're looking, at an ins- uh, they're looking at an unsolved homicide in Wisconsin to see whether he's the perpetrator. They suspect he might be. Indiana State Police are investigating whether Han could have killed another ISU student named Anna Harmeyer in 1977. Anna's Pontiac was found in September 1977 with the hood up on the side of Indiana 37 near Martinsville. Someone saw her getting into a car being driven by a man. Her body was found in October in a cornfield strangled. At the time, Han was living in Washington, Indiana. Hmm. Possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. So his ex-wife and daughter were probably not totally surprised that he was attached to Pam's. Because he had a history of violent behavior. I don't think they were totally surprised. I think that's why she was happy to cooperate. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing. What an awful realization, too. Ugh, so yeah. sad. Pam Milam was an example of a young college student who was doing everything right. She was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Her killer, a hand, I believe, was an opportunistic predator, a serial predator, I believe, uh, smart enough, as I think we said, to know that college campuses are a great place to find, you know, female targets walking alone. We often talk about this when we discuss routine activities theory, how when you have, you know, kind of the lack of guardianship, mm-hmm. suitable target. And yeah. and campus security was definitely much more lax in the 70s. Yeah, not what it is today. As you said, there were no call buttons. The this, the lighting wasn't as good. There was no student escort programs. Um and awareness that sad to say, awareness that women should have to take mm-hmm. or women should take caution walking alone at night. The vast majority of college campuses are open to the public. And while they all may seem like idyllic, safe environments, they're no safer than anywhere else. Nope. And so, yes, I just think it seems like such simple advice, but this case just illustrates the importance of the buddy system. Yes, absolutely. Especially, unfortunately, for young women. I'd say for anyone, really. If there's, if you, if it's late at night, and you could be with someone, be with someone. I agree. I mean, this is you or know, be on the phone with someone. At least now we have cell phones, and if you're on, you know, I don't know. It's just it's a little easier now to. It is easier now, and things have changed. Yeah. And you know, we've talked about other cases too that have forced different legislation. So I do believe that you know these. Events can be prevented, although, Amy, no matter what, we are still going to unfortunately hear about cases Mm -hmm. similar to Pam Milam's. Thank you for listening to our episode today. We hope you'll join us next time on Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media 
You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.